Greetings, everyone, and a warm welcome to you in Intersections. Our aspiration here, as always, is to seek to dissolve boundaries so that we can um, explore ideas from a broader frame and get insight and inspiration for how to rise to our full potential as individuals, as teams, as organizations, as society, as, as humanity. And uh, today, we have in our midst uh, Nicholas Carr, who is a tremendous force in warning and cautioning us about how some of this hunger and this quest we have to advance and to um, just take on more and more in a pursuit of the good life through technology might actually be coming at some serious cost. And um, as a very sobering voice, an important voice, uh, he has shed much light on this topic in recent years. So what I'd like to do is take a moment to just introduce him to you. So he is uh, a writer as well as a former executive editor of the Harvard Business Review. His work focuses on the intersection of technology, economics, and culture. He wrote the seminal article, which really made a lot of waves around, you know, we might think of Google as a really force for good, acquiring more intelligence and knowledge. And he called his article, Is Google Making Us Stupid? what the internet is doing to our brains. That then led also to a seminal work in the form of a book called What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, you know, The Shallows, for which um, he has been actively hailed, you know, uh, as having written a modern classic. It was a Pulitzer Prize finalist and a New York Times bestseller and touched off a lot of debates on technology's effects on our thoughts and our perceptions. He's written a number of other books um, before and after uh, Shallows as well. He has been valued, you know, as a voice in several forums, uh, in storied institutions like the World Economic Forum, as well as you know, UC Berkeley and many other schools where he's spoken at. He's been awarded for his achievements um, in the public, uh, you know, intellectual life uh, by the Media Ecology Association. He's received, for example, the Neil Postman Award from them for his seminal work around reflections on the role of technology in media and society been featured on major leading media as well. And here is a quote from Nick to get us warmed up. We shouldn't allow the glories of technology to blind our inner watchdog to the possibility that we've numbed an essential part of ourself. What is this numbing really about? Let us bring Nick in at this point to join us in the conversation and uh, take us through some of his reflections. Nick, um, warm welcome. Great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. Ever since I stumbled into your work, it's put me into this kind of like a meta frame, right? Like there's this uh, the doing and the happening of everyday life and the complete fusion that we have with technology. And then you are, you know, a force unto yourself and saying, hey, guys, pause, step back, pull away, extricate and look at the big picture. And then as I've sought to do that, I'm really struck by some of the things that you've shared about how we all embraced, for example, this new age of digital with such a sense of optimism. You mentioned in your book, um, for example, this Pew Research in, two, in 2010, just, just 10 odd years ago, about how some 400 or so prominent thinkers had uh, a kind of like a really powerful vision of the world we were entering. Could you, could you talk about that for a second? Yeah, this was a study that was done, a survey uh, in around 2010, as you said, and I think 80% of the experts, and this was a broad range of, of people, were very optimistic about the internet and, and, and had a sense that, you know, fundamentally, it was all going to be good, um, I think. And, and it reflected the times. Certainly, there was there's enormous excitement about the internet. And I think for two reasons, two very good reasons. One is the internet provided us with a lot more information. And the second is the internet provided us with a lot more connections, a lot more communication between people. And in general, you certainly have to applaud those things. We all want more information. We all want more communication and more connections. But I think what we lost in our excitement and in our enthusiasm and even I'd say in our naivete, is that how we get information and how we communicate and receive uh, communications from others is at least as important as the volume of information and the volume of communications that's going on. And I think what I argue uh, is that if you look at how the internet provides us with information and how it provides us with communication, both you know, the ability to speak and the ability to be spoken to, you start to see that there are big problems. And so kind of once you look under the hood to how these things, these very powerful technologies are designed, you begin to see that maybe uh, the good is offset by some of the bad things that, 
we've seen happening. Uh, we want to come and talk about some of those uh, cautionary yeah, things you've noticed about how you know, there's a lot of bad coming with the good. I found some of the stories you shared about the that sense of naive optimism that so many of us have felt uh, to be quite striking because I could relate to some of those. I mean, some of these are people who are extremely accomplished academically and, and otherwise. I mean, there's a Rhodes Scholar there and others who are deeply invested in the intellectual life and who are actually believing that that they're becoming smarter with uh, the use of the internet. I want to read a quote there from Shia, right, uh, who you mentioned is a philosophy major, and it talks about how I go to Google and I can absorb relevant information quickly. Sitting down and going through a book from cover to cover just doesn't make sense. It's not a good use of my time, as I can get all the information I need faster through the web. Yeah, so it, it was interesting that you, you've been having these conversations with uh, with friends and beyond and, um, you know, c coming up against this sense of just like optimism. Right. And, and that was my own sense, too. I, I mean, I have to say, you know, in in the early days of the web, uh, and it was as a, as a writer who does a lot of research, a nonfiction writer, you know, suddenly I could research that would have taken days and, and even weeks in libraries and stuff. I could do very, very quickly and I could go out and interview people online. I could locate them and find them and have email conversations and, and so forth. So it, there, there was something very thrilling about the arrival of uh, first the personal computer and then uh, the Internet that we felt this new world opening up for us. And, I, and it was only and in some ways I began to question that enthusiasm and that excitement based on my own experience. Uh, I was spending a lot of time online. Uh, this was in you know, 2005, 2006, 2007, whatever. And I realized in myself that I was, was having trouble concentrating, was having trouble paying attention. And what I diagnosed is, is that the internet, the technology, because it's so rapid fire, so high a volume of, of information coming at us and going out from us, that I was in effect training my mind to be distracted, uh, to crave interruption, to crave stimulation, what, uh, whatever sort, and, and the more the better. And as a result, I seemed to be losing the ability to really control my own mind and focus on one thing and pay attention to one thing for a long period of time. And so it was that experience that pushed me to begin doing some research into the psychology of media, the neuroscience of how we interact with technology and the history of media and technology. And that's kind of ultimately led to the book. Well, first to the article you mentioned, is Google making us stupid? And then to the book. And it has been something I've continued to watch, you know, in the decades since. Yeah. It's interesting because it's not perhaps like completely unknown to us that uh, there are ills with the uh, uh, the World Wide Web and uh, social media and smartphones and everything else going on in our lives. And, and there's an increasing concern that the addictiveness of things like social media, what it does to people's sense of self-esteem, the echo chambers that get uh, formed when you start to just live in a certain siloed community within these uh, virtual uh, spheres. Th those are things that have been actively publicized and people have been at least made aware of them. But I think you're taking us to an even more fundamental place about how it's changing our brains. And I've, I've done some you know, research and some teaching around this notion of neuroplasticity in the context of uh, helping people become better versions of themselves. So thinking of this plastic nature of the brain as something that can actually help us get to it a better place. But I think you've very rightly so cautioned us as well that, look, this plasticity can get us in trouble as well. So I'm actually jumping the gun because I want to come to that conversation maybe in two steps. Maybe the first step is if you can highlight for us this um, idea that you've uh, shared, obviously building on, on, on the great thinking of certain minds in the past around how when a new technology, a new medium comes, it's not merely the content that we consume from it that is revolutionary in the access we are getting to something we didn't have, but it's the interaction and relationship that we have with that with that platform that actually silently shapes our lives. Yeah, this is one of the kind of fundamental ideas of media studies and media theory in general. Uh, you mentioned I received the award named after Neil Postman. Neil Postman was a, a great mind thinking about uh, media TV in particular. Uh, Marshall McLuhan earlier uh, came up with the, the famous phrase, the medium is the message, which kind of encapsulates this idea that when we have an information system, a media medium, uh, that we use to gather information. What we focus on naturally is the content, you know, the, the radio program on the radio, the television program on the TV, the conversation we have through our phone, all the information coming from the internet, 
But what McLuhan and other media theorists explain to us is that the technology itself shapes the way we gather information, the way we make sense of information, the way we perceive the world even. And so the technology itself, in many ways, invisibly to us, shapes our mind, shapes our perceptions at a very deep level. And this helps in my own personal case, this helped explain why my mind seemed to have changed uh, the more time I spent online and that influence continued even when I wasn't sitting at a computer or, or, or using a laptop or whatever. And I think if you look through history, you see examples of this over and over again. You can go back, for instance, to the invention of the printed book some 500 years ago with Gutenberg. And what you see with the, with the printed book, I think, is for the first time, people could kind of not only exchange information uh, through the printed page, but they could sit there with a book, be in very, very close interaction with the words on the page and the thoughts of the author to the extent of a kind of closing off the other distractions that have always been around in the world. And so it had this intimate quality of, of getting lost, as we say, in a book or in a text. And I think you can go deeper than that and say, say that the printed page, and particularly the book, helped train us how to pay attention. Because I think human beings are naturally distractible. We want to know everything that's going on around us. Uh, and I think this goes back way into ev for evolutionary reasons. You know, the more you knew about your environment at every moment, the better the chances you'd stay alive. So the, the book, uh, the technology, the book, the medium of the book kind of helped train us to control our own mind, not to allow the distractions in the environment to keep grabbing our attention. And so that's one example, uh, I think, of how, even though as people read the read books, they were interested in the story or the arguments, it was shaping the way they think and it was making them more attentive, more able to concentrate. And I think from there, you can go on you know, throughout history and, and see other examples of whether it's radio or, or telephone or television of how as we adapt ourselves to new media, uh, we change our thinking, or at least change the balance of our thinking. We begin to think in certain ways more often and other ways less often. And I think that helps explain why the internet and social media and smartphones and so forth have such a profound effect on us, because this is a set of media that we're more involved with. You know, people <laughs> pick up their phone the moment they wake up and it's the last thing they look at before they go to bed. We've never seen a medium that is so constantly interrupting us, pulling our, our mind toward it, mediating the way we express ourselves. And so if you, if you set that this new technology within this long understanding of how media shapes the way we perceive things and the way we think about things, you see that we've created a technology that really has unparalleled, an unparalleled influence over the way we think. Yeah. I love this uh, quote from your book, you know, in your own writing, you say, even when I'm not working, I'm as, as likely as not to be foraging in the web's data thicket or just tripping lightly from link to link to link. <laughs> I, I love that uh, idea. It's, a, it's, it's very compelling because, as I said, I, I think there's all sorts of reasons for this, but, but I do think we love the stimulation of finding new information. And it can be the silliest information imaginable or the most profound information imaginable. It, it kind of doesn't matter. We, just that sense that we get when we're looking at our phone or at a computer that we can tap a link or, you know, scroll and get new information. It's very exciting and very compelling and also very addictive. Yeah. I want to take you back in history. I'm curious if you've... Um come across uh, any such um, findings as well. But but just as a, something to kind of build on, on the thesis just offered about the evolution that we've had with the knowledge and media and platforms. Time way, way in the past that in India, we would call the Gurukul. And the idea was uh, that uh, these children would be actually you know, given over to a uh, teacher who would actually have them be in residence for a period of several years as they were learning, learning about life and preparing themselves for adulthood. And uh, during that time, prior to the days when there was actually even, you know, books around, they were complete. I mean, their Google was the teacher. I mean, you know, the teacher was going to have to give them the knowledge, you know, that, that they have, would gain. And the general principles from what I understand at that time was to only give people apportionate, like give them just a little bit at a time. So they might, for example, be given a certain paragraph or a certain verse of a major scripture or something. 
and then they were meant to reflect on it and then to meditate on it and then to discuss it. And only then would they be given the next paragraph, maybe an hour later or something. So, um, you know, sometimes that thought comes to my mind as well, that when we have uh, created a civilization that seems to assume that quantity is quality, right. you know, it's something that we have started to lose about um, the depth, you know, the depth of mastery, assimilation and living the truths beyond merely having some intellectual grasp over them. Anyway, thoughts, reactions? No, I think that's a great example. And, and it that's exactly what I meant, you know, by this idea that we need to pay attention to how information is presented to us, uh, as well as the quantity of information that were that is accessible to us. I think under the influence of the internet, one of my one of my theories is that media technology, information technology, not only changes the way we think, but changes the way we think about thinking. And so what I think we've, I, I think because we're constantly inundated with information, you know, in all, all sorts of forms, overlapping, coming at us from all different sources, we've, we've kind of begun to define the intellectual life as being a matter of gathering information, getting as much information as quickly as possible. And I think gathering information is very, very important. But what we've lost sight of is that that's only the first step to deep thinking, uh, the gathering of information. The second step, and I think ultimately the more important step, is stepping back from the flow of new information to think deeply and attentively about the information we've already gathered. Uh, and to put it into context, to connect it with other things we know and think about. And, and just as the example you showed uh, illustrates, you know, if we get better at thinking of both of these stages of our intellectual lives, the information gathering part, which is very important, but also the, the, the time that you screen out new information and screen out distractions and actually think deeply and perhaps meditatively about information, that's... That's where we get our deepest, most creative, most interesting thoughts. And I fear that because we become so focused on always gathering information, we're not giving ourselves the opportunity or the encouragement to get more into that reflective, uh, contemplative mode of thinking that I think is so important to, 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 to living up to our full intellectual potential. Thank you, Nick. Not just for highlighting some of these issues, but you are such an articulate communicator on these matters, uh, which, which really you know, inspires me. Let's get a little bit deeper into our understanding of what the core issues here are and what's at stake for the next few minutes. Nick, let's do this. Before we get into deeper into some of the elements of the problem, could you weigh in on something I found really powerful in your writing, which is a fusion between this and the science of brain physiology, right? There are, there are some unique new findings we have about the brain, very different from the view of the brain 100 years ago. And that shows how much is at stake really in this uh, game between us and the internet. Could, could you talk about that? Sure. There are a number of them, but why don't we start with, with the, the topic you've already brought up, which is that of neuroplasticity. Up until about 40 years ago or so, it was believed not only by the general public, but by neuroscientists, brain scientists, and so forth, that our brains were plastic, in other words, malleable, adaptable, only for about the first 20 years of our life. And after that, it was believed that you're stuck with the circuits you developed for your, your over the first 20 years of your life for the rest of your life, and nothing really changed other than neurons beginning to die off. What we've discovered really in the last, since, the, since around the early 1970s or so, is that that's not true. Our brains are plastic throughout the entirety of our lives. We, we can constantly adapt to new to changes in our environment and think in different ways and, and by that i mean you know adaptable at a physical level at an anatomical level as we learn to think or or, or exercise our brain in, in a particular way it's kind of like with our other muscles we optimize our brain for that way of thinking we dedicate more neurons we dedicate more neural circuits to that way of thinking and we prune away the circuits that we don't use so much and i think in general that's a great powerful benefit of the, uh, of the way our minds work, uh, because we can adapt. We're not stuck with the brain we had when we were 20 years old. But there is a negative side to that, or a potential negative side to that. And that is that our brain doesn't make value judgments about how it adapts. It simply adapts to what we use it for the most. And I think when you begin to look at how technology influences us, you begin to see that we can easily train our mind to want to be distracted. 
to want to be interrupted, to want to be amused and stimulated all the time. And if we do that, if we spend all our time taking in information in overlapping fashion, lots of different forms, we're not practicing more attentive and I think deeper ways of thinking, kind of the ways of thinking that require us to make connections uh, between different pieces of information. That only comes when we're paying deep attention. And what happens, unfortunately, therefore, from what we know about neuroplasticity, is our brains begin to optimize for that very distracted, very fast-paced form of thinking. And we begin to lose not only the habit, but the capability to think in more contemplative, reflective, introspective ways. I think that, in some ways, is the biggest risk we face. Not only do our habits change because of the technology, but the very, the very way our minds work begin to change as we adapt to the new medium and the way it presents information to us. So I think that's one of the, there are other, <laughs> other parts of brain science that I also think are important here, but, but I think that's kind of the overarching one to, to keep in mind. Folks, if you haven't read Nick's uh, book, I really recommend it. There is uh, a lot of richness uh, to these ideas and they will stay with you for a lifetime, not just to help perhaps you rethink and reform your relationship with technology today. But who knows in the decades to come what other such battles we will face. What I really like, Nick, in the path that you've taken here for us is A, you're leveraging some of the latest science. B, you're still going back in history and giving us that context so that we can frame this in the context of a journey humanity has been on. Yeah. And then C, the conclusions you're coming to, to me, are applicable to a, a fast evolving and changing environment where who knows what the next tool is that we are going to have to embrace. But but like these principles that you're positing would be equally applicable there. So let's do that. I mean, you know, we can only go so far in our right. conversation here, Nick, because I'd love to deep dive a little bit more on some of those other elements of brain science. But in the spirit of moving on, let's turn maybe to one. You've highlighted the compromise we implicitly have struck in our relationship with the internet to have our attention so scattered that we are at is not able to do our deepest thinking. There's another piece that really struck me in your research, which is the fact that we retain less when we are consuming information from this medium versus in the past. Uh, there are a couple of really telling studies that you share about how one of the researchers took her class out to a museum and you know showed them exhibits and you know if I recall it, it correctly enough. And you know some of them were encouraged to actually take photographs of those you know through their smartphones or things. And what she found is that with those people they remembered less those exhibits where they were taking photographs than the section of the class that was actually just experiencing and enjoying them just for what they were without bringing in that additional digital distraction. That was one study I remember. There were several others as well. Just proving out that the more we depend on memory from the outside, like Google being our memory database, the more we seem to just unconsciously, I guess, taken less inside? Yeah, and I'm fascinated by how <laughs> how memory works and how technology influences memory. And again, it, it's a, as all of these things tend to be, it's a kind of good news, bad news situation. We've become so enamored of the ability to have pretty much all information and all of our experiences and uh, what we've done readily available to us through technology, through Google searches, through uh, other databases uh, and so forth. That that we've kind of come to underestimate the importance of our own personal memory, the, the biological memory in our heads. And you often hear people say, oh, it's great. I don't have to remember anything anymore because I can just Google it or I can just go online and find it. And that's a problem. Uh, on the one hand, it's absolutely great that we have this supplementary artificial memory uh, that exists outside of our own minds that we can tap into. And that's been the case since you know, people first started writing things on rocks or whatever, that suddenly we had a way to access information that wasn't uh, simply what was contained in our heads. So that's one of the great stories of civilization through books and through television and onto the internet. But there's a problem here, as I say, and that is that it's through remembering things, what, what, what brain scientists call memory consolidation, that we connect new information to the other information that we have in our minds. And deep thinking isn't about the individual bits of information, stuff you can Google up very, very quickly. It's about the personal connections we make in our own mind, the associations, uh, the connections between 
far-flung bits of information that we've learned through connecting to our experiences, our emotions, other people we know. It's those that's that web of connections inside our own mind, inside our own personal memory that gives richness to our thought. And that allows us to think conceptually, for instance. So we're not just taking in a a bit of information to act, to answer a particular question. We're taking in a bit of information, but we're also putting it into a broader context that allows us to think critically about that. Memory consolidation, this transfer of, uh, of information from our very short-term memory, you know, that it's called working memory, stuff coming into our mind that we're thinking about in the moment, to our long-term memory, that process of consolidation requires attention. It requires us to think deeply about a piece of information or an experience or anything. And it's only by paying attention to it that we form those connections and associations with other pieces of information that give richness to our thought. So if we're in an environment, as I think we are today, where we're constantly bombarded by new pieces of information, we're so distracted and so, inter so constantly interrupted that we never pay enough attention to information to connect it, to consolidate it, connect it, and incorporate it deeply into our personal store of knowledge. And as a result, I think that, again, this shows the problems with how information is presented to us. We end up with an enormous wealth of information, but we're only thinking superficially about it. Yeah, there's a saying, right, about um, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And I think what you're pointing out that actually the opposite is also true. A prodigious amount of knowledge is a dangerous thing. <laughs> or a prodigious amount of information. Information, <laughs> information, if you want to call it. Yeah, incredible. The other dimension that I found quite striking in all of these challenges and hiccups that you've you know, highlighted is the empathy dimension. That besides just uh, analytical thinking, and creative thinking, there's like the human side of our emotions, our feelings, our capacity to understand and connect with others. And that too sounds like, you know, as you're sharing from some of that very eye-opening research gets severely compromised uh, in our interaction with technology. Can, can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah. Let me preface it by saying, I think the research into empathy and into technolo the technology's emotional influence is at an earlier stage. I don't think at this point we can be too definitive about the effects. And I want to make clear on that. But we have seen, I think, and it's kind of these diverse studies uh, looking at empathy and other emotions at, from different angles. We have seen the beginnings of what I do think is, is a concerning, seems to be a concerning trend that the more we're immersed in the world of digital media, the harder it becomes for us to feel empathy or to feel other kind of deep emotional connections with other people. We've seen this in, in, in some, some psychological studies, particularly dealing with young people who have grown up with the technology, have grown up with social media and stuff, and how their levels of empathy seem to be reduced. We've also seen it in, in studies that's, that indicate that just as deep thinking requires attention, so does deep emotional connection, such as empathy. So you have to really kind of spend time thinking about a person or, or looking into their eyes or conversing with them to really develop the capacity for, for a rich feeling of empathy. So just as our thoughts might be compromised by being constantly distracted, so might the richness of our emotional connections be compromised if we're constantly distracted. And then even more recently, there have been some studies, very fascinating studies, that show that if people have person-to-person -person conversations, face-to-face -face conversations, those conversations seem to be compromised if they have their phones, their smartphones, with them in the room, even if they're not looking at their phones. There have been a few interest, very interesting studies that show that people who have conversations with their phones, when their phones are with them, have less feelings of empathy with the other person, have less feelings of trust, express less levels of satisfaction with the conversation than do people who have conversations when their phones are in a different room. And so that, that kind of begins to hint at, and I think there are other studies that show this as well, that we've so deeply trained our minds to expect new and interesting information from our phones, these devices that we have with us all the time, that actually we're kind of monitoring, we're thinking about our phones subconsciously and monitoring uh, our phones and kind of waiting to, to use our phones all the time that they're around us. And one of the theories is that if your phone is around you, it represents all the pe other people you could be talking with virtually through social media, through email, through texting, whatever. And that competes 
with your conversation, in-person conversation with someone else, even if that person is your spouse or your child or a deep, a close friend. And as a result, because your attention is divided and you're not giving your full attention to the other person, our emotional connection and our empathy and our sympathy seems to be eroded. You shared um, in, in your book somewhere that technology is in a sense like a servant and we are the master, but it's such a perfect servant that it ends up being a master because we, we get so addicted to that level of control that we have over it. That was sparking in my mind, as you said, what you just said, because I can also imagine that let's say you're having this conversation and it's becoming a little bit dull to you or a little bit disappointing to you because of what the other person is saying or doing. Well, you got this escape path, which is, you know, you can just go into that world and you are the master there and it will completely please you in whichever way you want to. And it will never annoy you because like, you know, you can control it. And maybe right. that becomes also an emotional uh, seduction almost, you know, of the technology. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I think, you know, for instance, Sherry Turkle, a sociologist and psychologist at MIT, has, has shown that one of the reasons young people in particular, but I think all people in general, they often come to prefer conversing through media, through, through social media, or through texting or through email. They actually come to prefer it over time to face-to-face -face interaction. And one of the reasons is because they're in more in control. Their, their social status is not at risk. You know, when you're, when you're speaking in, in real time with a person who's right across from you, you can say something stupid or you misspeak or you can, you're nervous about how you present yourself and you can't correct yourself except after the fact. Whereas when you're, when you're speaking through a medium, you do feel like you're insulated from that kind of social risk and you can edit yourself uh, and you can, there's this delay between in the conversation. And I, and I think that explains why. And again, this is, this shows up in surveys as well, particularly about very young, young kids who actually most of them now, and this, this to me is kind of mind blowing. Most of them now would rather interact with their friends through technology than face to face. So it's understandable, but I think what you lose is the kind of richness that that only comes when you're physically present with a person. So you're not just exchanging words, you're exchanging, you're reading their gestures, you're reading their eyes. It's, it's very concerning to me that by downplaying the importance of that kind of close physical connection, interaction with other people, we're kind of substituting a rich form of communication for a much less for a much for a much lesser form of communication. Yeah, I'm just uh, getting sparked here with just a few other ideas around this dynamic between you and another person and how it's being reshaped by technology. Building on what you just said, uh, it comes to me uh, as well that perhaps this uh, ultra control we have at the microsecond level of being able to click on another link and another link and quickly judge as to whether this is entertaining and interesting enough for me or not. And if not, then just click away, you know, to maybe that, I don't know, but maybe that is leading us to be more impatient in uh, our conversations and in our listening with people. Because if we don't really find that we're getting hooked by what they're just talking about, we want to click away, you know, to, and so we interrupt, maybe we interrupt to change the subject or to bring a voice in or something. And, and so there's perhaps, I don't know, this would be interesting to quantify if over time we have been interrupting people more and listening less. Yeah, I don't know if there are studies in that particular, on that particular, but there are studies that show that, that we seem to be becoming much more impatient. There is this really interesting study several years ago that looked at the relationship between a person's speed, their internet speed at home and their patients. Uh, and what they used as a proxy for patients is how long people would wait for a YouTube video to start before clicking on a link and going somewhere else. And what they found is as your internet connection speeds up, uh, your patience, your willingness to wait for a video to start, a video that apparently you wanted to watch at one point, gets lesser and lesser. Uh, and so it, it, it went from people would wait five seconds when they had slow internet connections for a video to, to start. And if it was delayed, they'd click somewhere else. It was down to a fraction of a second <laughs> that people would wait. So it that seems to indicate that as we adapt ourselves to the kind of this constant simulation, this constant, constant ability to control what we see at a microsecond level, our patience, our willingness to wait for something, to endure any kind of delay, diminishes and diminishes pretty dramatically. Yeah. What you just shared, it appears to me that it is so critical for us to relook at education, right? And whether it's in schools or in colleges, you know, have people take a class in something like this with someone like you or who speaks, you know, from this vantage point of sagacity as well. 
so that we become more aware and then ultimately are able to regulate you know more what it is that we 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 want you know from this world right N not to throw out these and go into some kind of an antiquated uh, sense of non-technology kind of self but to embrace them in the most thoughtful and balanced way and continue to build the right habits in people because it's a little bit disturbing you know to see the possibilities of if we just unconsciously just keep operating with these systems around us, especially with the interests of various uh, highly powerful and highly smart people out there who are keen, if nothing else, you know, just for manifesting their vision and helping change the world with some 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 new technology, but not realizing the potential downsides of it. Um, could we talk about that at a macro level, which is, you know, you highlighted some of these subtle things that are going on to even change our brain physiology, neuroplasticity, make us retain less, make us do less deep processing, make us empathize less, make us more impatient. Well, when you multiply that across millions of human beings and interactions, is it possible that some of the challenges that we are facing in society today are in fact just the symptoms of something much deeper and that's the way technology is yeah just redesigning our brains i certainly think it's it's having an impact and i think it's at least one of the factors behind behind some of the troubling things we're seeing for instance with not just the circulation of misinformation fake news um, and so forth but the willingness of people to accept it as fact. I, I think one of the reasons, and I, I'm not saying this is the only reason, but I think it's an important reason, is that if our brains have adapted to this state of this environment of constant distraction, constant interruption, and we're not processing information as deeply, we're not developing a context, a broad context in which to think critically about new pieces of information, then yeah, you can see how how you begin to, to just take in information so quickly that if you're not judging it critically, you can become very gullible. You can begin to believe things that are simply not true. And also you tend, you, you can start to tend to believe things are true simply because you see them more and more often. Uh, and that's another thing that happens because of the design of, of a lot of particular social media is that people, it begins to reflect back to people their existing biases. When that happens, and we know from plenty of psychological research, those biases become stronger, people become more extreme in their views, less willing to listen to alternative views. I think the technology is a factor in both this, the, the kind of increasing gullibility and in, in believing falsehoods as facts, and also the kind of factionalization or polarization we often see. People, people begin to form very strong groups, political groups and others, believing only what the group thinks and demonizing anybody that's not in the group. I think these are big social problems we face right now, big social issues, and I think there, there certainly, uh, there's certainly lots of factors behind them. But, but I do think one of them is the information environment we've created for ourselves. Yeah, you've talked about how carefully and thoughtfully these major uh, digital platforms have uh, designed themselves to to help serve every little micro need that we have you know and running all kinds of experiments and optimizing the color of you know some part of their website and everything else and i wonder is it is it possible there to build on what you just said about how the internet is reshaping even our social dynamics that we are finding our capacity to experience such a if you want to call it perfect personalized world in the virtual sphere that we are increasingly expecting that from the from the real physical world as well and when we don't get that in a relationship when we don't get that in a community when we don't get that in somebody's opinion we, we are quick to cancel or, or to reject or, or to pull back because like i can get it here why do i need to be with you right i do think in 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 some ways this ties back to that, that what i mentioned earlier about kids beginning to like to converse online rather than in person that does right. seem to me to indicate that that as we adapt to the technology, it becomes, we feel so in control when we're online. We feel everything's very convenient for us. Everything's kind of designed to respond to our needs or interests, even if we haven't felt them yet almost uh, immediately, that the quote unquote real world with real people in it and real tensions. And, you know, you have to, you have to be patient sometimes and you have to, you have to work through conflict. That begins to seem like, why would I want to be there? Because, because this, 
this, this virtual world is so perfectly designed to respond to my every whim and to give me new stimulation all the time. And, and I think, you know, you could argue that this is a long, a long term trend with media in general. And you heard similar things, you know, about radio and about TV. But it does seem to me that when we adapt to this, this, this world that is shaped to our every whim and we, when, you know, all we have to do is scroll or tap on a link to feel in control, the kind of messiness of the real world begins to to seem like it's it's just too big of a struggle to deal with. Yeah. So shall we turn in this last segment, you know, of our conversation to thinking about sort of what kind of practical advice and uh, just prescriptions we, we, we might be able to offer around how to continue to stay more in mastery over the medium rather than have the medium master you? And have you kind of experimented with, with a few practices and behaviors in your own life, Nick, that have really helped you? Yeah. I mean, let me say that I struggle with this too. Just as it was my own loss of attentiveness that clued me into something deep might be going on here, I still, the online world, the world of your smartphone is extraordinarily compelling. And, and I do find myself fighting against it sometimes. But I guess I, I would say that this is no longer just a matter of personal. The internet, the online world ha has been so integrated into our social lives, uh, into other aspects of life, that this is the kind of compulsion to be online is not just a personal compulsion anymore. It's also a social compulsion. You have to, to do your job. You have to be online. To, if you're in school, to be a student, you have to be online. To be a sociable person, you have to be online. So I think if, if we're going to deal with this, we have to deal with it at a social level as well as a personal level. But to look at the personal level for a minute, I do think that the biggest, my biggest piece of advice, and it's also probably the most difficult for people to act on, is to resist the temptation to carry your phone with you throughout the entire day. For some reason, when cell phones and then smartphones came along, we took it on as an assumption that, oh, I have to, this has to be with me. This has to be on my person the whole day long, whatever I do. And I think as, as the, the phone has come to influence our thoughts more and more, just the simple fact that it's with us and tempting us and, you know, notifying us and, and getting in the way of our thoughts and our, our social lives has become a problem. And so the biggest thing I would argue is that if people spend some some part of their day, some substantial part of the day without their phone on them, whether it's taking a walk or having lunch or dinner with somebody or having a conversation with somebody or, you know, going out and, and doing things where your, your phone isn't essential. I think you, you begin to break the kind of deep connection that that's come to kind of define our, our, our mind's relationship with our phones. And, and I think as soon as you do that, you begin to open up old ways of thinking that are more attentive. So, you know, as with all tools, I think our phones and our computers, social media, they're good. They're very good at some things, but they're not good at all things. And we make a mistake when we feel we have to use them for everything. Um, so I think being more critical and, and self-conscious about the way we use the technology is the first thing to do. And then there are other things. I mean, I think I, I mentioned the distractions that come with notification. Uh, social media companies, other, other t tech companies, internet companies have realized that notifications are a great way to constantly be on people's mind. One thing I would suggest is turning off all notifications because then you are making the choice of when to check on things rather than the technology making the choice for you. And then finally, as a practical matter, I would, I would be very wary of social media because social media, for all the benefits it brings, and I'm not saying you have to get rid of it altogether, but it's designed to keep you distracted. It's designed to kind of plug into not only our inherent desire to gather as much information as possible, but to be kind of socially active all the time and socially conscious all the, all the time. So it's kind of this perfect <laughs> distraction technology. So it, being more disciplined in the way we use the technology in general and the way we use social media in, in particular, I think, is at least a first step toward taking more control over our own mind. Are you saying, Nick, that like I should not have my smartphone in arm's reach when I go for a shower? I mean, like, I'm, I'm not allowed to do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, you can't have it on your bedside table when you're sleeping. You're, yeah. yeah. And it's funny, you know, you, you're talking here about, you know, we're all being pulled, you know, by the social aspect. And and yet I was thinking like, wow, but, you know, you also just shared with us how this is such a um, narrow band way of experiencing the social touch because it's not organic. It's not as human. There are many signals you're not seeing or, you know, all the complexities of life and all of that. So it's social, but not really social, too, at the same time. Right. Yeah, Th those are great prescriptions. You know, those are great prescriptions to offer. Actually, I'm motivated to um, really kind of think about consciously what is the part of the day that I want to now 
uh, experiment with keeping the phone far away from arm's reach. So, so thank you for that. Folks, I, I hope that you will also take in something from here that you will experiment with and just see, see what bounty can give you after you work it out for a period of time, right? Like let, let the brain kind of settle into a new routine and just see then uh, what, what rewards it's giving you. Uh, and Nick, I was also thinking like one thing that has been really helpful for me is, you know, in my work is to become aware of the time when I feel the need to, yeah, assimilate more, process more, challenge my thinking more and recognize uh, that those are times when I need to close the screen go for a walk in Central Park or just do some quiet thinking rather than, uh, you know, or noodling around on, on some pen and paper kind of, you know, technology rather than smartphones and computers and the internet. I don't know if you, do you do anything um, like that as well, where you're just uh, going through, uh, I guess, like these uh, cycles of getting very invested in the quick little hyperlink world versus yeah. consciously pulling back to do some of your, I don't know, your deeper thinking. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, since way before the internet came along, I've realized how good walk can unlock creative thoughts that you would have never had otherwise. But but I do think it brings us to a, another point, maybe, maybe a last point, is that it used to be before we had computers and phones with us all the time, it used to be that there was a rhythm in your life that there were times when you were with people and you were socializing, it was great, you were conversing, exchanging ideas, but then there were times when you weren't with people. It's threw you back on yourself and, and you had to explore things that were interesting to you, maybe read a book, maybe listen to music, whatever. Today, if you have your phone with you all the time, then you can socialize all the time. So, so suddenly that rhythm that we used to have in life just becomes a straight line that we're always having the stimulation of socializing, even if it's virtual, as you say, narrowband socializing. So it's only, you, in order to get, I think, what is that old rhythm of sometimes you're being contemplative, you're alone, you're with your own thoughts, and sometimes you're socializing. To get that back, you really have to make an effort at it in a way that you didn't used to because there were simply times when people weren't all around you. Um, so it does, I do think that getting, having a better balance between kind of the environment you're in, the intellectual and social environment you're in, and more diversity is is all to the good. Yeah, very nice. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. You've given us a lot to think about. Maybe just as a closing thought for you to help us with, I, I, I wonder what you think about the loss of simplicity, I guess, that... Um, this medium is um, foisting on us. Uh, there's, there's a lot of richness to it, but is, is there something we lose when we aren't uh, as focused on just um, distilling and simplifying and getting to the essence in, in, in very simple terms, in very simple terms, you know? Uh, that's one thing I really like about your work that when I, when I read it, I mean, you, know, you could have written a whole encyclopedic kind of piece on all of the pros and the cons and generated a lot of lists for us and all of that. But actually, it's the essence of what you're saying is very profound, but it's also very, very simple, really, um, you know, in a profound way. Well, thank you. And I, I mean, this, the question of simplicity is very, very interesting to me. And I think in, in some ways, there's a there's a paradox that you that you have to have a complex store of information in your own mind and kind of the time to process information in order to simplify things. In many ways, it's when, when, when information is, is just coming at you all the time, you're, you're in a constant state of confusion and everything seems very complicated because you're, you don't have this big context to fit things in. So in some ways, it's, it's having a rich, complex reservoir of personal knowledge in your own mind and then time to fit new information into that knowledge and to think deeply about it. That kind of allows you to see, to kind of synthesize lots of complexity and see some of the kind of simpler principles, the essential principles underlying it. So yeah, I mean, I haven't, until just this moment, I haven't really thought about it in those terms, but yeah, yeah, I think that's that's an interesting, the, the sense that we've, we've, we're losing the ability to simplify things, which means getting to their essence. That That's a very interesting way to think about. Mm, yeah, thank you. So in closing, you made such a important contribution at a very timely moment in the history of civilization with these works that you have put forth. Uh, where are you headed next? What's um, What's going on in your life and what is drawing and pulling you today? That's a good question. I wish I had a really good answer because I'm, I, I'm kind of searching for a thing that, that really stirs my curiosity and in the way that, for instance, the way media influences our minds did. And there's a couple of things immediately. I, I have a new article coming out that looks at how, as a society, we might think about regulating social media. And it draws on the experience 
that society had 100 years ago when we were suddenly confronted with the arrival of broadcasting, first in the form of radio and then in the form of TV. And there was all sorts of chaos and tumult. But as a through our democratic institutions, through our democratic processes, we were able to, if, if sometimes haltingly, we were able to kind of figure out how to how to regulate the new media in the public interest. So we had this, this sense of the common good. And I think we can get back to that. It'll be hard. But that's one of the things I'm thinking about. And then there's, you know, the, one of the buzzwords today in, in, in the technology industry is, is the metaverse. And you see Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook and stuff talking about this. And it's basically this, it's very vague at, at this point, but it's, it's, it's kind of virtual reality, and but also a kind of even richer form of the internet. And so I, I'm trying to make sense of that. If, if kind of we're going to be in a way virtual all the time, even if we are still physical beings, what, what's that going to mean to us? And is that the next stage of, of technology that, that the quote unquote real world and the virtual world in the virtual world simply become so seamless that in essence, we're, we're kind of living in virtual reality. Even if we're not wearing the goggles, we're living in a kind of virtual reality all the time, which is both interesting and scary to me. And, and so that's, that's something I'm want to try to make sense of. Yeah, very nice. I mean, I, I spend a fair amount of my time in more of the professional world, the business world, the uh, organizational world. And I know, you know, your work just uh, sweeps across life and work in every other facet of who we are. But this area that you're getting drawn to is uh, obviously so critically on the minds of every CEO today. What, what's the future of work and the workplace and the workers? And what does it mean for us to thrive and create culture and a community and build high performance, you know, in, in a primarily digital, virtual kind of dispersed space. So I look forward to seeing where your scholarship and research takes you and uh, to having us all stay in touch. Thank you so much, Nick, for joining us today in a very rewarding conversation and ending up with, with some prescriptions and ideas, you know, that allow us to recognize that while there are tremendous forces that are, in a sense, that are being foisted on us unconsciously or consciously, that there's much we can do of our own choosing to take small steps to um, benefit from these media without necessarily being tamed by them. So uh, I let you have the last word. Any final just thought, you know, that you just want to put out there in in the ether for our audience, and we will end with that. So this will be this will be our final word, Nick. So you brought up the the business world, and that was you know when I was an editor at Harvard Business Review, and my first few books were about more on the right. management and strategy and IT strategy and so forth. I will I will say that what I've heard from a lot of the, from the business world is that these problems that I've been talking about are are also a problem in companies that. They are having trouble, you know, companies that that need people to think deeply uh, and attentively. And this can be software companies. They, they can be engineering companies. They can be all sorts of companies. You want people to be able to screen out distractions and screen out interruptions and really focus on hard problems. And I think so I think companies are struggling with with this loss of the workers uh, abilities to pay attention. And I would put I would put some of the onus back on business executives and business managers, because I think whether it's tacitly or explicitly, they've been sending out the message to all their employees, you need to be connected all the time. You need to be constantly on email. You need to be, need to be constantly focused on whatever system we use to manage the flow of information in the company, even if it's 10 p.m. at night and you're with your family. You have to start sending the message that, yeah, being connected and following information is important, but we also need to encourage and reward deep, attentive thinking. And that might mean that somebody is not connected for a couple of days because they're really focused and that's okay. So, so I do think that there is a role here for businesses and business executives to play in kind of encouraging deeper, more attentive thinking and saying it's okay not to, to, to be a little delayed in responding to an email or a text or whatever. Yeah, I love the fact that in the example you're just giving, you know, you weren't talking about it's okay to not do it for this evening or for these two hours, but you talked about like a couple of days because some things require really deep work. Uh, so that's a beautiful prescription to make, Nick. Thank you for responding to that part of our audience and talking about the implications of this at work. Um, I'm very, very grateful. Uh, so all the best to you, Nick. Thank you again for joining us. Such a joy to have you. Thank you. It was uh, yeah. very stimulating in a, in a good way, not overstimulating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. Wonderful. Uh, all the best. Take care. And uh, we look forward to having you back on the show sometime soon. Great. Thanks. Yeah. yeah.